Welcome to the South Canaan Valley Church of Christ podcast. Please enjoy the following study. It's my prayer as we turn to a, a study of God's Word that the things that we have to, to look at will continue to, to edify and build you up today. As you can see on the screen above me, I want to take your attention back to a, a character named Barabbas. We're going to talk a little bit about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ today. And if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew 27th chapter. That's where we'll be taking our initial reading out of it. I want to look at this individual named Barabbas that we don't know a whole lot about. He just kind of appears on the scene and he disappears from the scene just about as quick. He's not an individual that we ever read him saying a single word. In fact, we never read of him actually doing anything besides standing there. We're told what he's done, but we never see or read of him doing it. We never see or hear him speak a single word. And I'll be honest with you, as I study the crucifixion of Jesus, Barabbas is not an individual that usually grabs a lot of my attention in that study because he's just there for such a short time. And in previous studies, I've looked at him, and I think it's easy to conclude that the role that Barabbas has played in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is to show the hard-heartedness, the hatred that the Jews had, that they would call for the release of such a man as Barabbas and demand the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, a man who's done nothing but good and kindness and love towards his fellow man. And in choosing Barabbas, it just shows us how deep the hatred ran in certain Jews that would want him to be killed and slain. And, and certainly I believe that, that idea is there, but I believe Barabbas' story is much more powerful than that. And I hope to show you that today. Before we read Matthew chapter 27, I want to back up just a little bit and quickly hit the highlights, if you will, of the crucifixion of Jesus going back to the Passover feast. You recall that Passover feast was initiated back in Exodus as we just talked about how that God led Israel's nation out of uh, Egyptian bondage and that freedom and He gave them that Passover, a yearly feast that they would remember that redemption. And as we fast forward to life with Jesus Christ on this earth, there comes that point in time when Jesus partakes of the Passover feast with His disciples. And at the conclusion of that, He initiates what we just partook of this morning in that communion. And from there, He and His disciples leave that upper room where they took that. And they've gone out into a garden. It's there that Jesus prays. And there's a lot more detail that we're skipping over, just hitting the high points. And as He prays there, they come and arrest Him and take Him away first to the former high priest Caiaphas's house. And Caiaphas tries him and, and brings in false witness after false witness, and they can get nothing to stick, and so he sends him to Annas, then Caiaphas. Annas tries him, and then the former high priest, and then sends him to the current high priest. And he tries him and tries him and brings in false witness after false witness, and they can make nothing stick. And finally they ask Jesus, Are you the Christ? And he says, Rightly you say that I am. And for that they accuse him of blasphemy. And they want to stone him and kill him, but they know that they as Jews cannot do that. So they take him away to Pilate, and Pilate puts him on trial. And Pilate finds no fault in him, finds nothing wrong, and is trying to find a way out of this situation. So he sends him to Herod. Herod kind of makes a circus out of the trial, but can't find anything wrong with Jesus. And sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate, in his difficult situation, 
is looking for a way out of having to crucify and condemn Jesus Christ. And it's there that I want to pick up the story at the final trial of Jesus Christ before Pilate in Matthew chapter 27, beginning there, if you will, in verse 15. The Bible says, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he could not prevail, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And that's the story of Barabbas. He appears very quickly on the scene at the end of Jesus' trial. He never says a word. He never acts. He's offered as a choice. And then he disappears just as quickly. But I think there's an amazing thing that happens here when we begin to look at this story. I want us to understand something about the trials of Jesus Christ, especially by the time it gets to Pilate. The very first trial that Jesus is on before Pilate, Pilate knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is innocent. He's not confused. He's not uncertain. He knows that Jesus has done nothing wrong. In fact, we read in Luke, the 23rd chapter, after Pilate has tried Jesus, he comes back to the Jews and says to them, I find no fault in this man. He's not anything wrong. He's innocent. There's nothing that I can find in him that is worthy of death. I find no fault in him. And it's at this point that Herod tries to, to find a way out of crucifying Jesus, and he sends him to Herod. And then he's sent back, and then we just read that. But as we read through that, I want you to notice some of the things that were stated that declares how much Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. Number one, it says in Matthew 27, we read there that he delivered him for envy, that Pilate knew that the reason that Jesus was standing in front of him, condemned by the Jews, wasn't because he broke some law, wasn't because he was guilty, but this was a political hit, you might call it today. That Pilate looked at this situation and said, the only reason this man stands before me is because of the envy of these Jewish leaders. In fact, not only did he know that, his wife knew that, and the Bible tells us that Pilate sent to him saying, have nothing to do with this just man, with this just person. Even Pilate's wife knew that Jesus was innocent, that he had done nothing wrong, that he stood before these this audience being condemned for nothing. In fact, after the second trial, Pilate turns to these Jews, and I love the statement he makes here 
in Luke the 23rd chapter, he says, having examined him in your presence. He said, I put this trial on and you stood right there. You saw me questioning. You saw me examining right there in your presence. And having done that, I find no fault in this man. No, neither did Herod. I didn't find any fault in the first trial. I sent him to Herod, and Herod didn't find any fault. I tried him a second time in your presence. You watched me examine this man, and you know that I found no fault in him. This man is innocent beyond a shadow of a doubt. Pilate knows that. Pilate wants out of this. When the crowd screams out for the crucifixion of Jesus, Pilate asks the question, Why? What evil has he done? Luke adds to that story that Pilate said, I have found no reason for death in him. Over and over, Pilate's declaring the innocence of Jesus Christ. Saying, I know this man is innocent. I know that he's just. I know that this is unfair. I know that this is an injustice. In fact, when it's all done and said, Pilate tries to escape any uh, responsibility. When he says, I can't do anything about it. I don't want an uprising made. He finally says, fine, you see to it. And Pilate says, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. He tries to wash his hands of it. Pilate knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is innocent. And it's because that he knows this that Pilate is trying to release to them a prisoner. He is trying with all his might to... Find a way out of crucifying Jesus. Now, when you study the Old Testament and you study uh, Roman history, I can find nothing in there that demands that the Romans must release a prisoner to the Jews once a year at, at the Feast of the Passover. That's not in Roman history. It might be there. I just haven't found it. But I, that I know of, it's not in Roman history that it was required of them. That I know of, it's not anywhere in the New Te- or the Old Testament that says the Jews were supposed to, to make this agreement with any nation that ruled over them. It's not there. But at some point, this became a standard practice that the Jews would expect of the Roman leaders that once a year a prisoner would be released. And as we look at some of the passages in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we, we get a little bit of understanding about this. In Matthew chapter 27 and verse 15, as we read earlier this morning, it said Pilate was accustomed to. If you're a King James person, it says Pilate was wont to do that. And that idea is it was a practice or a habit that he had. And so it was something that Pilate had done many times before, at least enough times that people could look at it and say, this is your custom, this is your practice. But when you look instead over in John the 18th chapter, as it talks about this, John records that Pilate said to the crowd, you have a custom. So not only was it Pilate's tradition or Pilate's habit that this was done, but also the people had this custom. And what that tells us isn't that, they, that there's a contradiction here, but that it works together, that they had a mutually agreed upon practice. The Jews had an expectation of this, and the Romans had an expectation that this would take place. In fact, when you look in Luke chapter uh, 23, as it talks about Pilate here, here it tells us that it was of necessity for him to release one. So accepted was this custom and practice that it was necessary. There was an expectation 
from the Jews that Pilate would release somebody. There was an expectation from Pilate that he would have to offer someone to be released. In fact, in Matthew's or pardon me, Mark's version of the story, it says, whomever they requested. So it wasn't just that Pilate got to look in the jail and pick anybody out of that jail to release. He allowed them to make a choice. But at the same time, we can gather from how Pilate performed this one that it wasn't just a case where Pilate allowed them to go, okay, who's, here's everybody that's in the jail. Pick whoever you want. It appears to be that there was a practice where he would bring out a couple of choices and that they would get to choose between those choices. And that's the method that Pilate is trying to use to get Jesus from being crucified. He looks into his jail cells and finds a fellow named Barabbas. Now, Barabbas is an interesting individual. We don't know a lot about him, but there's a few things we do know about him, and we can compare him to Jesus and see that Barabbas was the exact opposite of who Jesus was. When we begin to think about who Barabbas is, there's a couple of things that we can know about him. Number one, and this is just something that I found very interesting, and that is that his name means son of father or son of fathers. Simon, you might think in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus refers to Simon Peter as Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah. And so Barabbas would be son of Abba or son of father or fathers. And that's just a little tidbit for you to know. I thought that was interesting. But in learning about this fellow, we don't know where he came from, what happens to him afterwards, but we do know that he was a notorious prisoner. That word notorious there, the idea that it carries with it is that he was someone that was well known. He was remarkable. He wasn't some guy that committed some minor infraction in some small town in the backwoods of the nation of Israel occupied by Rome. This guy was known by everybody. They didn't even have national news at that point. They didn't have Skynet, and they didn't have the Internet where everybody could go online and read about this guy, but everybody already knew who Barabbas was. If that gives you an idea of what it means to say that he was a notorious prisoner, everybody knew who he was and what he had done. His crimes rung out throughout the empire of Rome. They knew Barabbas and what he had done. Well, what is it that he had done? He was a rebel, a rebellion. If you're in a King James, the Bible calls it sedition, heresy. He was guilty of leading a revolt, a rebellion against the nation of Rome. It's highly likely speculated. We don't know for sure. It's speculated that he was a member of the Zealots or some similar group. You might think of a Zealot when you hear Simon. The zealot, or when you hear of zealots, you might think of Simon the zealot that was one of Jesus' apostles of that same group, which is a group of people that tried to overthrow the Roman government. That's who Simon the zealot was. That's most likely who Barabbas was, was a leader of that group who was active trying to overthrow that Roman government over him. And we're told that he led a rebellion against them. He wasn't just a rebel, but had actually led an actual rebellion against them. And in that rebellion, in that battle, he committed murder. He took the life of someone. Most likely a Roman individual, a Roman guard, a Roman soldier. So he's this zealot, he's this rebel who has a notorious name, who's led a rebellion against Rome, and he's killed someone and took their life. John adds to that in John chapter 18 and verse 40, just adds this statement about him that he was a robber. He doesn't tell us what he took. 
doesn't tell us what he stole. It might have reference to the fact that he took a life that wasn't his to take. I don't know. It just tells us that he's a robber. But this is what I do know about Barabbas. When you put all this together and really begin to examine who Barabbas is, we know this much is clear. He is a guilty man. This is not a case of let's wait for the justice system to play out. This is not a case where we're going to make signs and picket and say let this innocent man go. He is guilty of the crimes he's accused of and clearly deserving of where he's at on death row. And all that's left for him is to wait for the day of his execution. You see, he's guilty and he's hopeless. There is nothing that Barabbas can do to change his situation. There's no appellate court. There's no hope of being released. He's been found guilty of rebellion and murder, killing a Roman citizen, and now faces the death penalty. I want you to imagine this morning that you were Barabbas. And they've pulled you out of this jail cell. And they've stood you next to this man that they call Jesus the Christ. His fame has also gone throughout the land. People have heard of the works that he's done. And you find out he's on trial too. And you stand next to Jesus and Pilate says, I'm going to let one of these two people go. Which one do you want? If you're Barabbas, what is your expectation in that moment? Do you really think the people are going to go, ooh, let's pick Barabbas and and let's kill this guy who's done nothing but good? Barabbas stands there hopeless. But then something amazing happens. I just can't imagine what it would be like to be Barabbas in that moment, to stand there and hear Pilate call out, Whom shall I release to you, Barabbas or Jesus? And then to hear the crowd begin to chant my name. Barabbas. Barabbas. What? What an amazing moment. What a life-changing moment that has to be for Barabbas to hear the crowd cry out. And behind you is Pilate going, Wait a second, time out. Are you sure you really want this guy? The crowd just keeps saying, Barabbas. He had to be blown away. It was unbelievable, amazing, remarkable to hear them chant his name. I want to ask you a question this morning. If you were there that day and you stood in the audience and you saw Barabbas and you saw Jesus and heard Pilate's speech, who would you have called for to be released? Would you have gotten caught up Would you have gotten caught up in the madness of the crowd and began to cry out, Barabbas, Barabbas? Or do you think that through strong conviction, and I'm not easily swayed by the people, and I would have stood strong, and I would have said, Jesus, give me Jesus. There's a song today 
called If I Had Been There. I love the song. It says, if I'd have been there, I'd have cried, take him down! And I think, honestly, all of us like to think that's who we'd be. That we like to believe that in that moment we would have cried for Jesus. But I want to tell you a truth. If you were there that day, and you had cried for the release of Jesus, you would have made a mistake. It would have been wrong to cry for the release of Jesus. You see, it wasn't the crowd that day that chose Barabbas. What happened, that something amazing that happened, wasn't the crowd picking Barabbas. It was God choosing Jesus to die. It was His plan from way beginning. Before the beginning of the world. And 1 Peter 1 and verse 20, the Bible speaking of Jesus says, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. God tells us that before I even laid the foundation of the world, I had a plan, and that plan was to offer my Son as sacrifice for the sins of that which I created before the foundation of the world. God had a plan. And that plan was to choose Jesus that day. This wasn't some miracle that happened. It was a fulfillment of the plan that began before the world was even made. In fact, when we began to read of the start of life on this earth, how God created the heavens and the earth, and we see that Adam and Eve began to go into that garden that God placed them, and they commit sin by partaking of that tree that God told them not to partake of. As soon as sin comes in this world, and the consequences to the man and to the woman, God speaks to the serpent that deceived them, and He says to them in Genesis 3 and verse 15, I will put enemy between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first prophecy that we read about, this bruising thing that He's talking about here is the very day that we're reading of when God chose Jesus to die. This was God's plan coming through. And as I said, this wasn't a case where an innocent man is miraculously saved from a corrupt system. That the system was corrupt, there's no argument. But this wasn't that. This was the innocent for the guilty. In 1 Peter 3 and verse 18, the Bible says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This is exactly what happened in that moment. When the crowd cried for Barabbas, they were calling for the unjust to be released, and they were calling for the just and innocent Christ to die in His place. That's exactly what Barabbas is. I want to tell you, Barabbas isn't... He may be partly there to show us the hatred and the anger of the Jews, but the truth of the matter is, Barabbas is the gospel in one word. What is the gospel? The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. 
For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to Scripture, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the Gospel. It's the story, the good news, that Jesus Christ, the innocent, the just, died for the unjust. He died for you and me. And we see that pictured in Barabbas. You see, that's what Barabbas represents. Is my guilt and your guilt. You see, the truth is you are Barabbas. I am Barabbas. On my own, I stand guilty before God. And Jesus died for me. I want you to think what the Scriptures tell us. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This isn't a comparison of my righteousness to your righteousness. This isn't a comparison of how few sins you've committed versus the sins of other people in the world. The fact is you're guilty before God. You broke His law. You sinned. You know, I think we spend way too much time trying to justify how decent and how moral we are when compared to everybody else. That's a lot like driving down I-35 towards Dallas and getting stopped and telling the officer, I was only going 85, they were going 90. And you would think I'm innocent. But the officer says, no, you broke the law. Doesn't matter what they did, matters what you did. And the truth is, no matter how good you think you've lived this life, I know that you understand and acknowledge that you've committed at least one sin in your life. And this is what James tells us about that. Whosoever should keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. Guilty of all. Now let's be honest. You've stumbled more than once, haven't you? It just takes one for you to be guilty before God. But you've stumbled more than once. You've stumbled more than twice. I'm willing to bet you've stumbled a whole lot. More than you can count. You see, you stand before God as a notorious sinner. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13. The Bible tells us there's nothing that's hidden. But all things are naked and open under the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. There's not a part of your life that God hasn't seen. Not one motive, not one thought. There was no dark corner you could get to. There was no backwoods of your life that God says, I wonder what happened there. But all that you've done are naked and open to the eyes of Him you must give an account. He's seen everything. And you can sit here this morning and try to, to push out that message, but I want you to understand and recognize God knows this morning your heart and what you've been doing. You're a notorious sinner in the eyes of God. You see, you've committed, committed theft. Romans chapter 2 and verse 21, it says, You that teach another, do you not teach yourself? You that preach, you should not steal, do you steal? Have you ever taken something that wasn't yours? That's called stealing. 
And it doesn't have to be like we think of, Stephen, where I went and picked a lock and broke in the house and hauled off of, you know, we think of theft that way. Stealing is just taking that which doesn't belong to you. You ever taken credit that didn't belong to you? That's theft. That's lying. You ever taken time from your boss that you didn't earn? That's theft. You ever cut the corners on your taxes? That's theft. You see, you stand as a notorious sinner before God and He knows every time you've lied and you've cheated and you've sought to get ahead in this life and lift yourself up. And that's what's at the heart of theft that says it's about me, me, me. I need, I want, and I don't care about you. You're a notorious sinner in the eyes of God. You're a robber. You're a murderer. 1 John 3 and verse 15 says that whoever hates his brother is a murderer. That you don't have to literally take a knife, take a gun, and take poison and end someone's life to be guilty of murder, but to hate somebody, to despise them. And you say, well, well, preacher, I've never really hated anybody. Are you sure about that? In the way that you've treated them as less than you? is not equal to you, is not as important as you, to place yourself, your wants, your desires, your needs above your fellow man, that's a form of hate. This is, I'm better than you. I'm more important than you. And I don't care if you suffer. And I don't care if you hurt. And I don't care what's going on in your world because my world matters more. What I want, what I need. You're a notorious murderer in the eyes of God. You're guilty of rebellion. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, the Bible tells us whoever commits sin commits lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. I like the King James on this one. Whoever commits sin transgress also the law. That word transgress, when you dig into it, literally means to rebel, to revolt. When you commit sin, when you break God's law, you're guilty of rebellion against God. And I want you to stop this morning and really ponder what it means to be willing to be in rebellion against God. Who are you willing to rebel against? I want you to think about little children. When they're real little, they do everything mom and dad says. And then they get a little bit older. And they think, I ain't afraid of you. I ain't going to do what you say. And they bow up and they buck up. And sometimes dad has to remind them, you need a little fear in you, son. You know, that's who we rebel against. It's those that we think we don't fear. And when you commit sin, when you transgress God's law, you may not realize it, but I want you to understand what you're saying to God is, I don't fear you. I don't care what you said. It's my life. I'll do what I want. I'm in charge, not you. I'm willing to rebel against you, God. And I don't care what you say. You see, that little sin that you think you committed, that's not that big a deal. I want you to understand that's how God sees it as open rebellion in His face that declares to Him, I don't care what you say. You're a notorious sinner 
in the eyes of God. And as such, you stand before God guilty and hopeless. Your sins can't be denied. You can't walk away from them. You can't run away from them. You're guilty before God. Romans 6 and verse 23 says, The wages of sin is death. You stand before God guilty and deserve the sentence that you're under. To have no hope in and of yourself. To stand before that one that you're willing to say, I don't care what you want. It's my life and I'll live how I want to. What you deserve is to stand before that God in all of your rebellion and to answer for it. But then amazing grace happened. Not because of what you've done, not because of how good you've lived, not because of how sincere you've been. But something amazing happened in that God chose Jesus. In Romans, the fifth chapter, beginning there in verse 6, the Bible says, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Now listen, for if when we were enemies. We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. We were enemies. That's all of that that we just talked about. The notorious sinner, the theft, the murder, the rebellion. What that made you is an enemy of God. And while you were in that moment of being God's enemy, God chose Jesus to die for you, to pay for your sins. This wasn't a miraculous reprieve of an innocent man. This wasn't an injustice being righted. This was the most severe injustice ever known to mankind that you in your guilt, in your rebellion, as an enemy of God, stood before Him condemned to die and Jesus said, I'll take His place. And God chose Jesus to die and you to live. This is God reaching out to you to redeem you, to buy you back. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, here God declares to us and tells us that Christ has redeemed or bought us back, has purchased us. How? From the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's how Jesus bought you back. He became that curse. He became your sin. He became your rebellion. And took that on Him. And took that punishment. Isn't that exactly what 2 Corinthians 5 declares to you and I? As it tells us that He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. All of my theft... All of my murders, all of my lies, all of my rebellion, He took. And what He offers in its place is hope that I could be okay with God. That I could be righteous with God. Because you see, God accepted that sacrifice. Notice, if you will, Isaiah 53, a prophecy about this. 
It says He was wounded for our transgression. He was wounded for our rebellion. He was bruised for our iniquity, our wickedness, our evil. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. By His stripes are we healed. A little bit later in that same chapter, in verse 10, it tells us God's response to this sacrifice of Jesus. It says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. He hath put Him to grief. When you make His soul an offering for sin, for missing the mark, for that evil, for that rebellion, He shall see His seed, He shall prolong His days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. God accepted that sacrifice. And He offers to you and I grace today. The truth is, just as Barabbas, you have a choice to make. That God offers to you salvation this morning. That you can choose to stay in the prison of your sin. Or you can accept that grace. This is what Jesus said about that sacrifice after He'd been resurrected from the dead. He told His disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel. To go tell people about my death about my burial, and about my resurrection. You go preach that to everybody. And he that believes that, believes what? Believes that God sent His Son into this world, that His Son lived a perfect life, that His Son died on the cross, was buried and rose again the third day. Everybody that believes that and participates in that through baptism will be saved. He that doesn't believe will be condemned. That's the offer of God's grace to you and I today. That if we believe the story of Jesus Christ and what He did, that He lives again and that we participate with Him in His death, burial, and resurrection, we can know salvation. That's exactly what baptism is. is a participation in that death, that burial, and that resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Romans 6, the Bible says, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. Therefore we are buried with Him through death, through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of His death, we shall also, uh, we shall certainly, we shall be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. You want to live again. You want to be freed from the condemnation that you stand. Then you have to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And participate with Him in His death, His burial, and His resurrection. That you can walk a new life. That you can live with Him. You've been freed from that sin. What an amazing story that is. And it's all pictured for you and I in Barabbas. That God offers you freedom from what you've done. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be there in that moment when they led Jesus off to be scourged and how Barabbas must have just stood there dumbfounded. I can't imagine his reaction. You know, there's one last thing that, that, that they crowd chants in this moment that grabs my attention. I want to share just real quickly with you. 
Pilate tried to wash his hands of this and said, you see to this. And the crowd chanted, His blood be on us and our children. I think I understand what they meant. I think they meant we'll be responsible. We'll take responsibility for this crucifixion. But I don't think they really understood what they asked for. You see, you and I today know that it's the very blood of Jesus Christ. In Romans 5 and verse 9 that we read earlier, Ephesians 1 and verse 7, it tells us in Him we have redemption through His blood, that it's that blood that was shed on that cross that we come into contact in the death, burial, and resurrection in baptism that restores you and I to have that hope, to have that life. So I want to close our lesson this morning by asking you this simple question. Have you come in contact with the blood of Jesus Christ? Have you died and been buried and resurrected to walk in newness of life? Understand how serious this is to God. That He would send His Son to die in your place. I just love this story of Barabbas. It just captures my my mind, and I, I wonder so much what happened to him. I don't know. We're, we're not told where Barabbas went. He may have left that day and went and joined the zealots again and lived in rebellion to God and died in his sins. I don't know. I like to imagine that Barabbas hung around the city that he was part of the crowd at Golgotha and stood there in wonder and amazement at this man that was dying for him. I like to believe that he was there in Acts chapter 2 and that he was a member of the church. Don't you know that would be an amazing story? (laughs) How powerful would that be to go up and tell people, listen, Christ died for you. No, 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 really, He died for you. He took my place. What a story Barabbas could have told. I like to believe he did that. We don't know. We just know that he was given a second chance. This morning, if you've not been united in death and resurrected in life with Jesus Christ, I want you to know that you've been given a second chance. The penalty for your crimes has been paid for. The door to your jail has been opened. And an offer of a second life, a new life, an eternal life stands before you. That day, God chose you to know salvation. If you've not saved this morning, I want you to know it's because of your choices. And you have the opportunity this morning to choose God. To walk out of that jail cell and accept His grace and know salvation. Or you can choose to turn around and close that jail cell and be imprisoned by your own sin. It's your choice. Will you come this morning crying, His blood be on me. Save me. Make me yours. His blood be on me. If you're ready to do that this morning, we ask you to have a seat in this front row as we stand now to sing this song. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast.
for further information about our church, please go to normanchurch.com, normanchurch.com, normanchurch.com.